You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election. We talk about Putin being in control. He's not ready. It's the various factions under him, and it suits them to have him at the front. You're trying to save our house deposit, and you'd have to save up some crazy amount of money. How on earth are you going to do that if a pint is £7? There's certain key things that we want from India, and there's certain key things that they want from us. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepker. Welcome to the programme. A bit later on, we're going to talk about the official data which shows that net migration has hit a record high of 745,000 net arrivals in the year to December. Joining us in a few minutes, Madeline Sumption, who's the director of the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford. But first, we're going to discuss if the government is picking a fight with the Bank of England over inflation. Rishi Sunak may have achieved his goal of halving inflation by the end of the year. But there is a warning today about how price pressures are still stubborn. That's the word used by the Bank of England's chief economist. He's been speaking to the FT about this. He says the indicators that the BOE is focusing on, pay growth and services inflation, that's things like restaurants, gym memberships and phone bills, well, he says they remain, quote, at very elevated levels. Mm. Remember, although the government is trumpeting having hit its inflation target, we'll probably hear that time and time again over the coming weeks, no doubt, uh, the Bank of England is a long way from actually hitting its target. Inflation's at 4.6% in the year to October. The Bank of England target's at 2%. Well, after the autumn statement, the Office of Budget Responsibility said that it expects inflation to linger longer than it did when it last made a forecast back in March. It also warns that the measure set out by the Chancellor will boost demand more than the supply capacity of the economy. Well, let's uh, choose some of this over and some of the political ramifications with Joe Mays from our UK government team. Now, Joe, what's the thinking in government about the inflation risk from the tax cuts we got this week? Well, I think the thinking is that they think they've done enough in the autumn statement to boost the supply side of the economy, to keep a lid on public spending, to reduce borrowing, such that even if it is perhaps like inflationary to be putting more money in people's pockets through the national insurance cut, that the net effect of this like fiscal package is broadly neutral. So that's why they think that they can get away with this. But it's a real question, as we've been talking about, for the Bank of England, because that inflationary pressure does feel like it will have to come through because of that effect. And so they have to be on guard. So we are potentially, yes, moving towards a situation where fiscal policy, monetary policy, perhaps moving in different directions. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for, for what people actually feel in their wallets most acutely, I mean, food price inflation is well above um, that number for, for overall inflation. So that's kind of quite difficult. I mean, the government at the moment seems quite in love with the idea of five 
goals. I mean, almost every minister seems to have five goals. Are they believing their own hype when it comes to halving inflation by the end of the year? That was the goal that was achieved. I mean, um, are they taking risks now by sort of um, having championed beating inflation in some senses? I think it is taking a slight risk, but from the political perspective, that's what's trumping now. It's kind of doing what you can to go into an election with a positive narrative that will voters might try to buy into, and that would speak to why tax cuts are potentially a good idea at this point. And so you can see how the political imperatives and the economic imperatives are starting to separate now, especially if we get closer to the election, and the Conservative Party is, is, is prioritising the politics. So it, it's going to get increasingly tense, I think, uh, because of these dynamics, and the Conservative Party just has to hope that inflation doesn't pick up in a way that the bank loan has to respond to through either keeping interest rates higher for longer or indeed going back into a cycle of raising rates. They really don't want to see that. So it's a real balancing act for both sides. The forecasts are that inflation is, is not going to come down to the Bank of England's targets uh, anytime soon. W- what are the dangers for the government if there's an uptick, is in, uptick in inflation? How much of a political problem is, is this still for the government? Uh, I think it is st- still a pretty strong one. And if that inflation effect is seen and the banking either responds with higher rates or keep them higher for longer, it simply means that we'll go into an election year where people will still be feeling the pain, especially on their mortgages, for example, and growth. The reason why the OBR this week brought those growth forecasts down was largely because of the effects of um, those higher interest rates, because that dampens economic activity. And that that's why it, it weighs on the overall size of the economy going forward. So and and the other thing that Rishi Sunak and Hunter to be careful of is future downgrades to growth forecasts, which mean that their fiscal headroom they used in this most recent autumn statement disappears. And then they're in an even worse position in the spring budget and have to un- unwind some of these tax cuts. So it's still really quite a fraught, fraught position. Yeah, I mean, I had to delve into the numbers on this to understand exactly this year where the UK's tax take is coming from. I mean, it's still coming from the big three, which is um, income tax, the payroll tax, which is national insurance, and VAT, business taxes, make up about 11% of the tax take. We're now a couple of days on from the autumn statement. People have had a bit more time to unpack all of this. I mean, the government delivered in some senses what a lot of Tories wanted, which was a big tax cut, i.e. to national insurance. It's one of the big three, as I say. So how did it actually go down amongst Tories, do you think, Joe? I think amongst MPs, it went down pretty well. I think there was a view that this is taking steps in the right direction. It's something they could sell on the doorstep, you know, more money for you, about £440 in the new year for an average worker because of the next cut. Um, so, yeah, I think MPs were broadly happy. I think, but more widely speaking, we had all the criticisms that we heard about how the tax burden is still going up in this parliament and indeed living standards will fall for the first time between general elections under this Conservative government. So, you know, there were, there were things for the Tory MPs to be happy about, but that bigger picture was still pretty, pretty, pretty weak. Uh, and that's something that the, the government has to contend with. Joe, I'm keen to get your take on how Labour feel about the autumn statement. Is there a sense that the Chancellor's boxed them into supporting two quite expensive tax cuts? The business tax cut in particular is, is a lot of money, leaving them with even less money to play with should they form a government? Yes, I mean the, the the key premise in the autumn statement is this, you know, quite significant decrease in you know, 
public spending around in real terms into the future. And that's something that if Labour came in, they would have to, you'd, you'd think, want to reverse some of that, but that might be having to put taxes back up, finding ways to pay for it. Now, crucially, at, the, at this point, Labour is not playing the game, so to speak. They're saying, we're not going to fall into the trap of engaging with this setup that you've made for us. We're not going to talk about it before an election, for sure. I mean, obviously, after the election, if they do win, they'll have to, to come to terms with it. But yeah, they're trying to trying to avoid playing into these traps. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, meanwhile, the speculation about actually when that general election happens, what looks likely? What, what's the playbook there? So there's increasing talk about whether the election might actually be in May. I think that the kind of consensus view prior to the autumn statement and in the last few weeks was that the election would come in the autumn, giving Rishi Sunak time. But now the view is that given that the payroll tax cut, the national insurance tax cut is coming in in January, that's a fast track to move. And you've also got the fact that the budget might happen earlier this year. Jeremy Hunt did not rule out that as a prospect. So all those signs together make us think, oh, maybe the Conservative Party is going to go earlier and then perhaps, you know, cut more taxes in the spring and then off the wave of optimism that that produces, hold the election. Um, so mm. that, 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 that's the latest view. But, you know, it's, it's, it's still not clear. It's still something that could go either way uh, but Westminster is certainly kind of at fever pitch on this question yeah absolutely about when that next general election will be Joe stay right there because that's the sort of conclusion around um, the autumn statement but we did also hear a bit more about tax cuts um, and whether or not they were the right ones and so we've been discussing this with the tax guru I will call him a tax guru I think that is fair probably Dan fair. Needle yeah um, he's the founder of Tax Policy Associates and I think he's probably become one of the loudest voices when it comes to analysis of the tax picture here in the UK um, he gave us an interview just earlier this morning on Bloomberg Radio talking about how disappointed he was by the autumn statement and all of the tax implications that it had. Have a listen. So there's always lots of political noise about the top rate of tax, 45 pence. Should it be higher? Should it be lower? 45 pence is not the highest rate of tax in the UK. The various weirdnesses in the tax system mean there are people earning £50,000 paying a marginal rate of tax of 80%. Mm. because of the way student loan repayment works, because of the way child benefit is clawed back. 80%. How can we have a Conservative Chancellor presiding over an economy with a top marginal rate of tax of 80%? It's, it, it's madness. And people respond to this rationally by controlling their hours, turning away work, even refusing promotions to avoid hitting the £50,000 mark. And there's a similar, sometimes even bigger effect at £100,000. And uh, I, I know many people who have, again, turned away work, controlled their hours to not hit the £100,000 point, because in some cases that can actually cost you money. And these, these are deep problems with the tax system that a Chancellor who's interested in growth and productivity should be focusing on. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I've seen you make this point about the sort of fifty to £60,000 camp, but also the camp, uh, you know, quite significantly higher on £100,000 to £120,000. I mean, I suppose the question is why the Chancellor is not addressing those and also whether there is simply an issue with the yo-yoing, as the Labour Party put it, the yo-yoing of um, taxes here, here in the UK, the, the kind of rate of change that, that the UK's tax system actually sees. Is that problematic to you? I mean, for business tax, it is absolutely a problem. You can plan a business investment based on pretty much any rate of tax, any tax system. What you cannot plan for is constant change. And 
uh, corporation tax, the rate has changed so many times in the last few years, I have lost count. And the regimes for investment have also changed. And again, we've seen another change to, to R&D tax credits. I don't think the details are out yet. But th this is unhelpful. Full expensing, a, a great thing. The right to do it, I would tweak it a bit, but it, it's the right thing to do. But really, business tax, this government and any next government, the best thing they could do is say, here is our business tax agenda. This is what we're doing. We are now not changing it at all for the next five years. And I think that, that would be welcomed by pretty much all businesses. What about the, the personal taxation part of it as well? Because it, obviously politicians are very keen to try and be able to deliver something like the two percentage point reduction in national insurance uh, for workers. But is there a question or a need for tax stability when it comes to personal tax? I think that is less important. I, it, it's clearly not great to fiddle endlessly with the tax system, but I, I'm doubtful there are wider economic issues from changing national insurance here, there, and everywhere, which is which is what's been going on. Mm. It's certainly confusing for people, and I don't imagine there's many people in the country who really know how their personal position has been changed by first of all the national insurance cut, but second the much more significant fiscal drag you mentioned earlier, which I think amounts to about fifty billion pounds overall in tax increases over the last couple of years. Fifty billion, not not a small number. Yeah, you say that you're quite disappointed with what the charts have delivered. I mean, the, the constraints, though, uh, the lack of economic growth in the UK means that. Hunt was restricted, is restricted, and a future government will be restricted because of the lack of kind of fiscal headroom. Um, and also, I wonder how much you agree with the Institute for Government and the IFS, you know, two significant think tanks, talking about how the tax cuts are not even sustainable. You know, um, the IFS um, quite pointedly talking about it being implausible that the tax cuts would even be able to hold. Do you agree? The disappointment to me isn't the lack of giveaways, because that clearly would not be responsible. It's the lack of looking at features of the tax system which hold back growth, which would not cost significant amounts of money, but which plausibly have a role in fixing the productivity puzzle that the UK's productivity has stalled over the last few years. And there are areas of the tax system, I mentioned income tax and others, VAT, where politicians should be looking very, very hard at mm. these features and asking whether there are ways to solve them that don't cost money, which could boost economic growth. So that was Dan Needle there, the founder of Tax Policy Associates. Interesting that he mentioned lots of areas of our tax system that are stalling productivity. That was his big criticism. You know, if you want people to get back to work, don't give them big disincentives around certain pinch points uh, in mm. the income tax brackets between sort of 50 and 60,000 and 100 and 120,000 pounds. That was his view, you know, and, and stick to your tax policy over a sort of long period of time. So that was his conclusion. Yeah, because yeah, there are loads of bumps in the tax system which people have been flagging particularly the people like Dan Needle for a long time as you say the, the one at 50,000 the one at 100,000 uh, the withdrawal of child benefit is a big problem for a lot of families now that uh, when you earn 50,000 pounds it's, it's withdrawn quite rapidly so that is uh, a big disincentive to work and, and these things have not been changed by successive governments yeah absolutely right so that's the autumn statement but then of course all of this really superseded I think today uh, you know the positive headlines that seem to come out from that statement by the record on immigration, uh, which has brought the, that issue into sharp focus. Net migration data released this week shows a near record number of long-term migrants coming to the UK in the year ending to June, a near record number also of long-term migrants. The previous uh, data was also revised up heavily to a record 745,000 net arrivals in the year to December. So the issue of migration... 
Yeah, of course, the Conservatives promised to crack down on the number of overseas rivals coming to the UK after a desire to reduce migrant numbers uh, fueled the Brexit vote. Joe, I want to get your thoughts on this. How much of a how much of a problem is this uh, for the government? They promised to get numbers down, and the numbers have gone very much in the other direction. Yeah, I think it is a, a very big problem in that the Brexit vote and the 2019 general election, all those political moments were very much largely seen as uh, moments where the country was pushing back on, on on immigration. But then for that in that period for for there to have been you know the, 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 these effects of, of such large numbers coming in, uh, that's that's something that will you know uh, anger many, and indeed it could boost the potential electoral success of the Reform Party, for example. So they have to be really careful that they don't lose ground on this issue, but those kind of numbers will inevitably fuel that kind of anger. So, yeah, let's be, let's be very careful. Joe, there's been a lot of reports about the mood on the Tory backbenches when it comes to the subject of migration, ranging from uh, angry to, to very angry. Do you think there's a sense that perhaps the government has focused too much on small boats, which is a relatively small number of people crossing the channel, uh, and they've sort of taken their eye off the ball when it comes to the bigger picture? Uh, yes, I think that's true. But there's also that question of how much does the government actually really mind about these high figures insofar as the economic benefit that obviously lots of these migrants brings, particularly in things like healthcare, social care. You know, most the, the large chunk of these numbers come from people coming in under government sanctioned schemes, you know, work visas, often non-EU workers. And so clearly there's a tension in government between the Treasury, number 10, who have been happy to preside over this system, but then mm. the Home Office wanting there to be strict controls. Yeah, absolutely. Joe, thank you so much for being with us. We're going to continue the conversation about migration. That was Joe Mays from our UK government team. And also joining us now is Madeline Sumption, who is director of the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford. Perhaps to talk in, in more depth, actually, about these official numbers. They are ONS figures uh, around migration. It looks like uh, net migration into the UK has uh, doubled since 2016. Madeline, great to have you on Bloomberg UK Politics. Who are the people that are coming in? What are the main groups? What do we know? Because these actually, these numbers aren't, um, they aren't that solid, are they? They are an estimate. That's right. The most recent numbers are are very much an estimate. They will be revised potentially substantially to just uh, illustrate that the numbers that we have for 2022 um, were revised up by almost 140,000. Um, so, you know, from the Office of National Statistics originally said it was 606,000. Now they're saying they believe it was actually closer to 745,000. As you, but as you get further from the um, the date when the migration happened, the numbers get more accurate. Um, in terms of who um, who is coming in, um, uh, the, the migration is is driven effectively exclusively by people coming from outside of the EU. We've actually got negative net migration of EU citizens, so more EU citizens leaving the UK currently than arriving. Um, and the main reasons for migration are the biggest one was international students, uh, people coming typically for master's programmes. Um, then you have uh, quite a lot of people coming in for for work. And the biggest factor there is people coming in the health and care sector and particularly care workers becoming in uh, unusually large numbers uh, as a result of a change in policy. We also have some people coming from um, Hong Kong and Ukraine um, under the humanitarian routes for those countries, but those numbers have dropped off in the most recent figures. How far can we 
trust these these ONS stats because as you mentioned they, they are a survey aren't they and and the latest revision we've had today was a massive change to the numbers from last year so can we can we trust the veracity of these figures the most recent figures are the the net migration of 672,000 um, I would expect that to be revised it could be revised potentially substantially you know easily we could see revisions in the in the tens of thousands um you know the uh, the office of national statistics said that perhaps it could be as low as in the 500,000s um or indeed in the in the 700s so um uh, so I, I think they really just give us a, a, an initial indication. The indication that we see, I think, is plausible, which is what what they seem to be showing is that immigration or net migration has leveled off and is perhaps entering a downward trajectory. Now, while that's provisional, it is actually quite plausible because one thing that my colleagues and I have um, been saying after looking at the numbers and doing some modelling is that we expect emigration to go up in the next few years as some of the international students who've been coming into the UK start to leave again. Um, there'll be more international students, so more people leaving is, is what we expect. So that downward trajectory, you know, that it's, it's too early to say for sure, but it may well be that in the coming years we'll see more of that happening. I wanted to ask you about students, actually. Some Tory MPs have called for students to be excluded from the migration statistics. How do you, how do you feel about that? Are we, are we counting the right people? I personally am not a fan of excluding the students from the net migration statistics on the basis that they are there, they are people, they exist. Many of them come for at least uh, a year. Most of them um, probably now come for at least a year, which is um, what makes someone count as, as an international migrant under you know well-recognised international definition. And so I think the Office of National Statistics can't just pretend that those people don't exist and that they're not part of the UK population. What they can do and what they are now starting to do is uh, is create alternative measures that allow people to see how different groups contribute, whether it's students or workers or family members. And I think what we will start to see is that actually students contribute in the long run to net migration much more than people have realised, um, mm. because even if only a small share of them stay permanent in the UK, there are so many students that um, that the you know the sort of twenty percent or so who've been staying. Um, <clears throat> recently, that can actually make quite a co- uh, contribution to the population in the long run. Uh, we we asked this of our UK um, politics correspondent that you might have heard just earlier, Joe jo Mays, on um, this issue. You know, does the public distinguish between the different types of migrants that come to to the UK? I mean, there's been so much focus on one of the five big pledges that Rishi Sunak made to stop the boats, as he puts it. You know, that's about kind of um, migration in a very uh, dangerous way of people desperately trying to get across the channel. That's a relatively small number of people compared to uh, the, the other migration figures. Do you think the public gets any of the differences? Um, no, I don't think so. I think that, uh, well, you know, maybe they get some of the differences, but I think in general, uh, when you survey people and ask them a question like, when you think of a migrant in the UK, who do you think of? People are much more likely to think about asylum seekers um, or people coming in in small boats, for example. Um, they are much less likely to say international students, even though international students are the biggest category of 
of people coming in. And like, you know, it's quite understandable that that would that that would be the case, because international students, even though they're really numerous, they don't get the same levels of of press coverage, obviously, as people coming in to, to claim asylum. So I do think that there is a risk in this debate that people talk in general terms about migration, you know, 1.2 million people immigrating to the UK or, you know, 675,000 net migration. And, um, and, and that people hearing those numbers, probably, you know, many of them in their minds will be thinking about small boats, whereas actually, you know, there are many different reasons that, that people come to the UK. There have been suggestions about how we could tweak uh, some of the, the the routes that people come into the country. For instance, um, uh, bringing fat students, bringing their their families with them. Some of these calls, particularly from conservative backbenchers, what's your view on uh, some of the ways that we could reduce the numbers if that's what we wanted to do? Mm. Yeah. So there's no from a sort of economic perspective. There's no optimal level of migration, but obviously um, politicians on. Um, both in both Labour and Conservative have said that they would like to reduce the numbers. So the question that that they face, if that's their goal, is okay. Well, how do you reduce them in a way that um, uh, does you know that is that is not damaging for the UK? And I think the um, I can see why um, the dependents of international students were um, were targeted first, um, partly because that the, there has been quite a large increase in the. Um, in the numbers of dependents, so family members, basically partners and children of of students, um, we don't have a lot of evidence on what their their impacts are, unfortunately, because most of the research was done at a time when this wasn't really a thing. People didn't tend to bring family members. Um, I think it will have. It obviously will have an impact um, on, you know, so we'll see fewer people coming in because um, those family members won't be there. We may also see fewer students coming in because obviously there will be some students who don't want to come to the UK anymore if they can't bring their, their family members. Um, so, but it's possible that, that universities will effectively um, you know, recruit more vigorously um, elsewhere among mm. groups of people who don't have family members and try and make up the numbers because universities effectively do see quite a big subsidy for their operations coming from international students because they pay much higher fees than domestic students. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge issue for that sector. Um, You've also published a report why the latest net migration figures are not a reliable guide to future trends. I mean, I think that's also worth talking about. The rising figures, um, it's something that successive governments have had to deal with. And yet, actually, in some of your work, you've pointed to the fact that it doesn't, it's not a predictor of the future. No, that's right. Um, and what we what we did in that piece of work you've mentioned is we say, okay, let's say you have the high levels of immigration that we've seen recently. Let's say that continues. What happens to net migration? And net migration actually, if everything else stays the same, net migration tends to go down because basically you've got people coming in now in larger numbers. Um, for example, international students who will uh, many of whom will go home, and so they'll basically subtract from the net migration figure in a few years time. So all else equal, what we really expect is the numbers will come down even without policy changes. There are a couple of things that could throw that off course though. And one um, one of them is whether we continue to see increases in the number of people coming in to work, particularly in the, the health and care sector. And the other is whether international students start to stay in um, at higher rates, for example, mm-hmm. because either because of the graduate route or because it's now easier for them to stay permanently if they can get a job in the care sector. 
Madeline, thanks so much for joining us. Madeline Sumption, Director of the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford. Fascinating to get Madeline's uh, thoughts on that. Yeah, how much pressure will the government be uh, under uh, on this uh, migration issue? No doubt something will pick up for you next week. That's it from us for today, though. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Tiwa Adebayo and our audio engineer was Mariful Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more next week this is Bloomberg Bloomberg UK politics listen weekdays at noon on DAB digital radio in London collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers doers and innovators leading the way from design and culture to technology science and entertainment Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.